When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Friends of the Rocking Cast, you are in for a really treat. We are joined by Dr. Lillian Erdahl, a surgeon at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Um, I've known her for a couple of years now, but she's on this particular episode to talk about her amazing, incredible father, Clemens Erdahl, who died way too soon at the age of 72, October 2nd, 2019. Um, Clemens meant so many, uh, so much to so many people, and he just had such an impact on so many people that his life touched. And so, really honored that um, Dr. Erdahl can can share her experiences with her father, and we can discuss his amazing, incredible life. So, Dr. Erdahl, how are you doing today? doing well thank you uh i got my second cup of coffee so you know i'm ready to go uh, uh i spent a lot of years with not very much sleep and so um you know as long as i have coffee i'm good to go fabulous well let me set the stage a little bit for clemens just in particular how i know clemens erdahl clemens erdahl was a lawyer in the city of iowa city for several years and then his his practice migrated to cedar rapids iowa and he had a very similar practice to mine, which is federal, uh, state and federal criminal defense. He also did a lot of post-conviction work. And so I practiced on and off with him and we collaborated on cases for about 10 years. And like so many lawyers and people throughout Eastern Iowa, Clemens was a mentor to me. Um, I learned so much from Clemens as a lawyer, as a person. He really was kind of a larger than life um, figure. And Yet he died very suddenly um, a couple of years ago, and it was way too soon. And I think I've been left over these last couple of years trying to piece together, you know, my reflections on Clemens. And so that's why I'm so honored, Lily, that you can uh, come and sort of share your own perspective and maybe illuminate um, some aspects of Clemens for people that knew him uh, that maybe they didn't know about Clemens, because he was sort of a, a very complicated and private man. And so there was sort of his public image. Uh, but then there was also his private image um, in terms of you know his, his own inner world. But he wasn't only a lawyer. Um, he was also on the Iowa City Council um, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And, um, and he was a community activist. And he loved poetry and he loved books and he was a storyteller. He really was kind of a real life Atticus Finch here in Eastern Iowa. And so hopefully with this particular episode, we're going to be able to illuminate this wonderful, amazing life and also his incredible, very accomplished daughter, um, Dr. Lillian Erdahl at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Um, so first off, Lily, could you just sort of explain, Clemens uh, is sort of an Iowan, but he was born in New York. So if you could just sort of explain, where was Clemens born and how the heck did he get to Iowa? Yeah, um, I, I'd love to. And, I, and you know, thanks for inviting me um, to share this. You know, I, I was um, 39 and a half the day that he died, he died on my half birthday um, because his family has a long tradition of dying on 
memorable days, mm. um, you know, Christmas, Thanksgiving. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I knew him for a long time. And so I think, um, you know, sometimes when I hear people who worked with him or, you know, knew him in one context, um, like you said, it doesn't tell the story of the whole man. Um, so if we really want to understand why Iowa was home to my dad, we have to go back to his parents. His parents were both raised on farms in Iowa, in farm families. Um, and, you know, his, his father um, uh, grew up in Rake, Iowa, but then moved to Forest City to go to high school. Um, and he then came to the University of Iowa where he graduated with a degree in accounting. And um, he was really uh, um, successful uh, educationally. He came to the University of Iowa early. I believe he was 16 when he came here to start his degree or when he started his college courses. Um, and he um, went on to become an international auditor. So he um, moved to New York to work for Price Waterhouse. Oh, wow. Um, and they moved a couple times. So Clemens actually lived in New Orleans for a bit when he was very young. Um, but they lived mostly in New York. Um, first, I believe, in uh, uh, the city and then um, in the suburbs. So, you know, most of his childhood was spent in Scarsdale, which is in Westchester County, New York. Um, and uh, his dad, you know, worked on Wall Street, worked for Price Waterhouse, became a vice president of Price Waterhouse. And eventually, um, uh, I think right before I was born, the president of the National Association of Accountants, which is now International Management Accountants. Mm -hmm. um, so it very accomplished in the field of accounting. And um, Clemens' mother actually got a master's degree from the University of Iowa um, in nutrition and education. And um, her nutrition degree was focused on uh, vitamins. Um, so, you know, he came from a family that really highly prized education. Huh. Um, and his, his mother, Mary Lou, was always pretty busy, um, you know, even if she wasn't working, volunteering for the Voluntary Ambulance Corp or something like that. So that, that's how they ended up in New York. Hmm. But you know, uh, as early you know as he can. Oh God! I was just going to say, and it's my understanding he did have a, my my own ethnic heritage is I have a sort of a Nordic background. Erdal is that a Norwegian Nordic name? He did have some Nordic heritage. Yeah, he? yeah. Erdal is Norwegian. Um, so so Clemens' um, father, my grandfather, uh, was a hundred percent Norwegian ethnicity, and um, you know, or nationality in terms of background and. Um, and then the other, uh, you know, family background was also Northern European, mostly um, his uh, mother was Dutch and French. Um, uh, so, yeah, the, the Erdal is Norwegian and actually the town Rake is Raka, which is Norwegian. So my grandfather grew up speaking Norwegian Oh wow! Um, as a child. Yeah. And, and Brooklyn, I think, has a small Nord Nordic sort of community. He was born in Brooklyn, correct? Mm hmm. Okay. He was born in Brooklyn. I don't know, um, though, that they would have been necessarily, you know, that involved in, in sort of, of the, that any community. Any of those sorts yeah. of activities. Well, mm -hmm. I think of this, you know, it's sort of interesting because, you know, uh, at, at my um, grandmother's funerals, uh, one of the songs that they did, and a lot of people do this at the funeral, is Dvorak's Coming Home. And it was done by Antonin Dvorak. And he spent some time in, or called Going Home in Spillville, Iowa, which is near my mm -hmm. hometown in Decor, which also is a big Nordic community, but it really yeah. resonates with a lot of people because here he was, 
He was in Spillville, but he really longed to sort of return to his roots. And that's why mm -hmm. he, was, he was really homesick. And I mm -hmm. think of Clemens dad's own journey, you know, they went out to the East Coast, they went to New York, Clemens was raised in New York, but ultimately he feels the call to come back to Iowa to sort of return to his roots. I wonder if you could share with us, growing up in New York, how did he get back to Eastern Iowa um, and what, what, what brought him back here? Yeah, so he, um, they came back to Iowa frequently. Um, they would drive uh, from New York to Iowa in the summers, you know, and uh, Mary Lou, my grandmother and, and Catherine, Clemens' older sister, and, and Clem would, um, you know, spend uh, maybe two months here. I mean, they spent a lot of time in Iowa when he was growing up. His parents actually went to Europe um, for about six months, I believe, when he would have been maybe two and a half or three years old. And so Clemens and Catherine moved back to Iowa and lived with their grandparents. Um, you know, so he spent a lot of time growing up here. He has a lot of cousins in Iowa and Minnesota. Uh, you know, so he really, I think it, it was, you know, home, the physical place, but also home connection to family, um, you know, that he felt throughout his entire uh, childhood, even though he was growing up in New York. And, so and, he, and then he ended up going to an Ivy League institution. Did he go to Columbia University? Yeah. So, so before he went to Columbia, this is a very East Coast story. So he, yeah. grew, he, went, he went to school in Scarsdale. He went to Scarsdale High. Um, but then he went to Taft Prep School um, for his very last year. So he came to, to Taft as a senior. Um, and his good um, childhood friend, you know, was there, had been there before him, Van Midgley. Um, but he graduated from Taft. And that's a, a common way, you know, to, to get a leg up, to get into the Ivy League. Um, you know, I, I don't know if he needed it, but it certainly wouldn't have hurt. Um, and, you know, I think a little bit of... Um, you know, Taft at that time uh, really had a lot of progressive teachers, um, you know, so, so he was really exposed to um, what probably would have been considered radical ideas um, even before he got to Columbia. Yeah. And then, you know, as we know, Columbia in the late 60s and, um, you know, New York, there was a lot of, of upheaval. Um, you know, there was a lot of controversy around the conflict in Vietnam. Um, and I think there was a lot of disillusionment. And I think of, of my dad as, as being part of this sort of hippie generation who was really disillusioned with their parents, with their parents' money and capitalist priorities and isolationism, um, you know. And, and so I think that that, he doesn't talk a lot about Columbia itself, although I think he, again, found very, um, a lot of progressive ideas or a lot of new ideas. Um, and what years was he actually, and what years was he actually at Columbia? Because you had mentioned that sort of the, he was sort of part of that generation of the tumult of the sixties. What years was he actually there? And I don't know if you could share, or were there any interesting things that he was involved in while he was there? Because you're right, it was this incredible age of tumult. Mm -hmm. And I know that Columbia was sort of ground zero of a lot of the protests. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, he didn't share a lot about that. He okay. would have been there. He was the class of 66 at Taft. And, um, you know, I think he was at Columbia for about a year. Okay. Um, so not okay. a long time. And so then he was there for about a year. And then what brought him, what brought him then ultimately back to Iowa? Yes. So, um, you know, after he was at Columbia, he went and traveled in Europe and North Africa. 
but at some point he realized that he wanted to go into the law mm -hmm. and he came back he he you know iowa has a very good law school has mm -hmm. um a long history of having a good law school and so he came back and he actually worked on his um uncle's farm his uncle bill crozier um and uh you know i believe he then was able to establish state residency prior to going to iowa um by doing that um you know, but also financially, um, it was a more affordable school compared to some of the other schools he might have considered. So he came back to do, you know, finish his undergraduate degree at Iowa, but really with the the goal of going into law. Um, and, you know, again, having that family around, I think, um, as well. Well, and you had mentioned briefly his, his, his sort of travels that he had done in Europe. Mm -hmm. One of the genesis for this particular podcast, I've been doing this podcast for about a year and a half, and I remember him from time to time sharing stories um, from his sort of travels throughout Europe as well as North Africa. And so I'd actually reached out to his, 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 his widow, Roxy, and I said, God, does he have any letters or written materials related to that? Because I think, I think that would make a really interesting standalone podcast. And mm -hmm. she wasn't aware of any, and so then she connected you with um, me and we didn't really have any direct details related to that. But I was wondering, do you have any anecdotes that he would sort of frequently share relating to his experience in North Africa? Um, mm -hmm. what, it sounded like he kind of had this incredible 60s style you know, walkabout, for lack of a better term. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, it was, it was um, definitely more than taking a gap year, um, which is what we would compare it to now. And you know, he was in um, Paris. I know he lived in Paris for a period of time and his sister was there during part of that time uh, on and off. I don't know exactly how that tied into her um, education. She went to Wellesley um, for her degree and she was two and a half or three years older than he was. And then, um, you know, he had some friends he traveled with as well um, from friends who were from the States as well as friends he met in Europe. And they traveled really all over and you know uh, one of one of my favorite stories was um sort of a spiritual story he was hitchhiking um one time in uh, europe and he was um either in holland or trying to get to holland and um the man who picked him up um and gave him a ride for some distance um you know said i know you I knew you in another life. Oh, wow. You know, and like, he's a, he's a foreign hitchhiker, right? Mm -hmm. You know, so keep that in mind when you're responding to what the, the person giving you a ride is um, saying to you. And uh, he said, you know, and my dad hadn't really told him anything about mm -hmm. himself. He mm -hmm. said, you know, um, you came on the long boats. Wow. Right. Which, which to Clemens, what meant that he was a Viking, right? You, you were a Viking, you came on the longboats, you know? Um, so wow, he had, good. you know, he had kind of these little anecdotes of like um, spiritual connection, you yeah, know, that he wasn't, he wasn't an overly religious person, but he was sort of a very spiritual person. Is that a fair way to sort of characterize Clemens? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, Roxanne was a, um, you know, a big part of, of that in his life, you know, maintaining that spiritual connection. He um, grew up, um, you know, in a, in a Christian family and, and um, going to church. And he, um, 
he also spent some time at the monastery in Dubuque. There's that Trappist monastery. And that was a place where he really found, um, you know, the time and space to connect spiritually with himself and with, you know, whatever uh, higher power um, was out there for him. Yeah, you know, I think that's true with all of us, you know, for a long time, you know, I think especially in the 60s, where that whole generation was kind of rebelling against, you know, virtually the entire culture. That's why they're called the quote unquote counterculture. But I know in my own spiritual journey, I used to uh, describe myself as a recovering Lutheran. And now I'm actually <laughs> a Lutheran. I actually go to church now again. It's just sort of nice to be able to reconnect to the roots. But Clemens was the spiritual person and he, and he really had an amazing life force. Um, you had also mentioned that he did some travels in North Africa. Maybe if you could just elaborate maybe one, one anecdote um, relating to his travels there, because that was kind of the original genesis. Because I, I, I think he even remembered a few Arabic phrases um, mm -hmm. that he did remember. So I wonder if you could just share one of those, and then we'll talk about his experience in, in Iowa City. Yeah, sure. He, he used to often say, alhamdulillah when uh, people would sneeze, um, you know, it's like instead of saying bless you or gesundheit. Um, and then he, he used to, one of the, his favorite things to do was make um, Moroccan mint tea. Um, and so, you know, he had this special sort of style of mint tea that he would make and he would put fresh mint from his garden in it. He, he always had an herb garden. Um, and so, you know, that, that was, you know, he picked up a few things while he was there, but the, the most profound part of his travel in, um, in North Africa was in Morocco. And he spent a fair amount of time traveling with a man he called Ayeshi. Mm -hmm. And Ayeshi, I think, was a mentor to him. And, you know, a little bit of this is my interpretation. Not that he directly said this, but I think Ayeshi helped him find himself again. Mm -hmm. I think he felt very lost when he left the States. He you know, um, felt disconnected and, and, you know, unsure of how he could make a difference in a, a very confusing, dangerous world. Um, and so, you know, he traveled with Ayeshi from market to market as she was like a traveling salesman, um, you know, but in Morocco, that would be at the, the you know, central town market. Um, and so, you know, they were traveling on foot um, from place to place, which left a lot of time for uh, talking and reflection and and some solitude. Wow. And so he's he does this for a couple years. How how long did he actually travel for in in Europe? You remember? Yeah, I don't know if I have if I have the exact time. He would have come back here, um, you know, in the early seventies. So you know, maybe three years, three four years, something like that. So one of the things that also really resonated, you know, he, I think we all sort of project ourselves onto Clemens a little bit, but he did serve in the Iowa City Council, um, I think mm -hmm. it was late 70s, early 80s, correct? Mm -hmm. it was um, early, yeah, mostly early 80s, yeah. Mostly early 80s. And like me, I served on the Iowa City Council from 2015 to 2019. I got involved through activism. Um, you know, a lot of times people that serve on city council are kind of chosen. Uh, they've served on boards for a while, but I, I took a different path. I got involved in some community development dis, you know, issues and sort of all of a sudden I thought, well, gosh, it's much easier to move the needle policy-wise if you're one of the four noses that can change the direction of the city. Mm -hmm. And Clemens um, had also a similar entry into Iowa City politics. So for those of our Iowa City listeners who knew and loved Clemens, I wonder if you could just elaborate a little bit 
what was sort of the, his entry? It's my understanding there was a flood control project, though there was some controversy relating to, I think, Ralston Creek uh, that sort of animated Clement in the late 70s. So I wonder if you could just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, um, Clemens was was what I would call a social agent of change, right? He was a grassroots organizer and he wanted to right the wrongs that he saw in society. He, you know, he grew up with a, a lot of privilege, mm-hmm. um, you know, both identity-based privilege as well as financial privilege. And I think he saw... Um, the difference in what he was given and how that allowed him, even with, you know, taking years off to travel and not really make any money that, that gave him the cushion and the um, education background to be successful in spite of, you know, dropping out of school. Mm-hmm. Um, and he really, you know, wanted to make the world a, a better place. I mean, his, um, you know, the, the people he looked up to were Martin Luther King Jr., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and, you know, John F. Kennedy, and um, other people who were really working for justice. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when he saw, uh, and he had a master's in urban planning, he intentionally did that as part of his law degree. And so when mm-hmm. he saw, you know, the homeowners um, and and the renters, you know, of Iowa City being negatively affected by landlords abusing them or by, you know, a development project um, that was going to put their homes at risk or, or unfairly drive up their cost of housing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he was passionate about that. He worked with a man um, named John Salter, who was later um, John Hunter Gray at the University of Iowa, one of his um, teachers and mentors, um, and, you know, some of the unfair rental practices. So, um, the Ralston Creek project, um, you know, I probably can't give you the detailed history of it, but he was, um, you know, somebody that the, the uh, homeowners affected came to, um, to say, you know, we need an advocate. And so he advocated for them. And John Burns could give you, you know, the story of Clemens advocacy and, and how yes. that looked. Yes. Um, and, uh, and, and, I, and I love that. pretty because, dramatic. <laughs> well, you know, one of the, you know, the thing is with, I mean, with, with funerals, um, Clemens' funeral was, you know, you can really tell about a person's life based upon who shows up at, you know, at their death. And the stories that were shared um, were incredible. I think you spoke, um, your siblings spoke, but John Burns also spoke about some of um, Clemens' early community organizing efforts in the city of Iowa City. And anyone who um, has grown up in Iowa City can sort of identify with community activism. I mean, we, we sort of organize about everything. And <laughs> one of the problems though, is that, you know, the Iowa City Council is, is usually pretty flexible. So there's only so much you can rage against the machine in the city of Iowa City, but I mean, there are legitimate issues. And, and at that time is a little bit of a simpler time um, a little bit more homogeneous. It certainly is more complicated now. I think the issues are really uh, more significant now. But, you know, John is a longtime lawyer, just shared this amazing story about how Clemens um, got involved in this flood control project and was sort of an organizer. And he was sort of a catalyst for change because a lot of times when you have these conflicts, you need an advocate. You need an advocate that's willing to stand up and mm-hmm. take and to, and to be a voice. And he, and he really was kind of a, a voice for the voiceless. So in terms of a city council practice, 
in his law practice, do you remember he must have been incredibly busy? I, I, I did one term on the Iowa City Council and ultimately just had to tap out because balancing mm -hmm. a law practice to city council is incredibly time intensive. So I wonder if you could just share your own recollections about his time on city council. What was that like? How hard was that um, growing up? Because I know it was, a, it was a challenge for me when I was on Iowa City mm -hmm. Council to sort of manage both things. Well, so I was born when he was on the council. Um, and, um, you know, the headline was uh, um, about my birth was that I was late. Oh. I was born on, on April 2nd. So the headline uh, read Lillian's help too late for city. <laughs> because at that time in 1980, uh, Iowa City was trying to get to 50,000 for the census, you know, and there was a lot of um, reaching out to students to say, you know, do you, are you sure you don't live in Iowa City, right? Make sure if you mm -hmm. consider Iowa City to be where you live, you know, that you say that on your census form. Um, and ultimately they didn't get to 50,000, which again is significant because of funding, you know, mm -hmm. your classification um, as a municipality. Um, but, you know, my dad didn't mean to serve a second term on the yeah. city council. And I believe it was Bob Vevera um, you know, it was, it was somebody who came out as his opponent sort of saying that they were running against him and then kind of pressured him to run. And so he got wise by the third time and he came out very early to say he was not running for a third term, you know, but, but so I, I don't remember as much, um, how busy it was, you know, as much as I remember, um, talking to him about it later and, you know, Clemens was, um, could be reactive, Right. Mm -hmm. He 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 was not somebody who was going to be quiet, particularly in those years. So when somebody said something on council that he didn't like, you know, I mean, he was going to speak up. And yeah. one of my favorite stories was and I believe it was Bob, but I don't want to you know, cast anybody in a bad light because it's you know, it's my dad's story and mm. uh, I may have the details wrong. Mm -hmm. But there was um, there was some discussion with the city manager about, you know, having women driving the heavy equipment mm -hmm. and they were whoever it was was upset that you know this this city manager was allowing women to drive heavy equipment and the city manager looked at him and said listen you know what i've never had a woman put a piece of equipment in a ditch but i've had plenty of men <laughs> drive pieces of expensive equipment into ditches and that was the end of that conversation Wow. Because all he had to do was present the guy with facts. But so I would submit to you, Rocky, that actually the issues that they were dealing with at that time, like whether or not we could achieve enough culture change in the Iowa City Fire Department to support a Black firefighter or a breastfeeding firefighter, which in fact we could not mm -hmm. because of the sexism and the misogyny in our mm -hmm. system. Both of those people were pushed out by the culture. You know, we like to think of ourselves as a liberal progressive city, mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we have a lot of systemic bias and we have a lot of that bias continue to be created by projects like the, the extremely expensive high rise housing projects that are being put in downtown, yeah, which absolutely. are simply worsening the segregated housing divide that we have in Iowa City. Yeah, you know, and, so. and, and you know, and, and, and one of the things in terms of um, a, as a white person, you and I are both white, navigating racial issues can be incredibly complicated because on the one hand, you want to be an advocate, you want to help out, you don't want to presume that you know the experience, you want to be an ally. So that's always very difficult, sort of how do we effectively advocate for that? And, 
one of the, I think the most poignant parts of the, of actually the funeral was a story that your brother had shared um, relating to a barbershop um, in, in Davenport that was essentially all people of color. And he actually had a lot of clients that were people of color. So I wonder if you could sort of comment on how Clemens, um, you know, his racial justice, how he, how he sort of moved the ball on that issue, um, how he, he seemed to very naturally and effortlessly work with, with people of color. His probably most famous case was the Sherman White case, in which I think he freed a, a Sherman after like nearly 27 years in prison. Um, so I wonder if you could just sort of comment on Clemens and um, what he did in terms of racial justice and, and maybe any stories that you'd have related to that particular issue, especially as it relates to his, uh, as a practicing lawyer. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, um, as you said, you know, we carry a lot of um, things in our identities. And so, mm. you know, my identity as a cisgender, heterosexual, white woman gives me um, quite a bit of privilege as I move through society. Um, and I have also experienced uh, quite a bit of um, difficulty, particularly in my profession, not just of surgery, but of medicine mm -hmm. um, related to sexism and, and gender workforce disparities. Um, but it's been really humbling to um, try to get into broader diversity, equity, and inclusion work and recognize um, how the, the intersectionality of multiple um, marginalized identities affects people's experience in our society on a day-to-day -day basis. And I think, you know, for my dad, um, understanding that there was injustice and inequity um, throughout the legal system was really where he focused a lot of his efforts. Um, and, and I don't know, um, a lot of your listeners may know, but um, Cedar Rapids was one of the worst places for enforcement of the discrepancy between the penalty for crack cocaine use versus powder. Mm -hmm. um, and so my dad talked to me a lot about that, about the systemic injustice within our justice system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think as much as he could, he tried to uh, make that um, a part of the discussion mm -hmm. in, in trial and in sentencing. You know, if there was an unfair sentencing rule, um, he, he wanted to go on record as saying that this sentencing rule was unfair and yeah. unjust. And, yet and he, he wanted to, to, you know, he wanted to make sure that his clients understood that as well and and that they understood that he saw the the systemic racism in our justice system yeah and i think really what struck me with clemens though is the way in which he you know um i work with clemens he did have a temper he could bark uh, and I, I certainly saw that part of him but in terms of his um i think one of the things that made him such an effective advocate he sort of had that, that, that baritone voice and he almost kind of had, I don't, it wasn't really a Southern accent, but he had a very distinct way of speaking, especially when he was presenting. And it was just in a very approachable way and um, sort of this relaxed role style. And I, th I think it was really effective. And I think in terms of impacting me, um, I, you know, early in my career, I was a little bit of a, a louder voice, shall we see. 
But in terms of it's not necessarily, it's not only what you say, it's how you say it. And he mm -hmm. was such an effective advocate as far as how he did that. And he would mention yeah. just injustice. He really did in everything he did. I think he, that was, in fact, that was one of his last, I actually um, was with him at the Anamosa State Penitentiary working on a post-conviction case two weeks before he died. And I always loved working with him because we'd always, you know, he'd always make use of every spare second that he had. So if, if we drove together, we'd literally be working on the case, but he'd always mm -hmm. share stories because he was such a storyteller. And basically he, you know, he'd give me feedback in terms of, you know, different things I could do differently. But he, he was saying basically something that he had learned from one of his professors. And really the punchline was, is yes, of course, you know, the law is very important. And of course the facts are very important. But if it's not really animated by that underlying sense of justice, you don't have a chance. It's weaving that justice into the into the and the story into the facts and into the law, such that by the time you hear the end of it, you know Clemens, um, you know you, you just can't help but say yes. I, mm -hmm. he, he he does get so. I wonder if you could sort of comment a little bit on that in terms of Clemens as an advocate and as a storyteller. Um, mm -hmm if you can share anything related to that particular topic. Yeah, I mean, he, you know, he grew up and, and you mentioned, you know, um, um, how he was able to relate to people and people who maybe had different life experiences from his, um, you know, he, I mean, he spent a lot of time in New York City, you know, doing things like going to the Apollo Theater, mm -hmm. you know, and he, he never really, I think, um, felt any more uncomfortable um, you know, being around people who didn't have the same identities or backgrounds as his. And by background, I mean, you know, maybe somebody who didn't get the opportunity to go to high school, you know, who, who worked in a blue collar job. I mean, I mean, I think he really, he never saw himself as superior to or different from anybody or bringing any more um, value as a human being to the world than, than any of the people he was around. Um, I think he felt, felt he was lucky to be where he was um and you know if he could help another human that that was that was the his purpose his his sort of why and you know his his approach to um working with clients and being in a courtroom was very practiced it mm -hmm. often came off as very natural but he studied people like Winston Churchill mm -hmm. and their approach to becoming good speech makers people like John F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. And, and you know, um, I, I think, you know, as Dr. King, a lot of, um, you know, great speakers were, were ministers or were people who studied to speak from the pulpit in the church. And so, you know, and he was an actor mm -hmm. when he was young, you know, and so he really, I mean, a lot of that was very practiced. He and Larry Fugate um, used to listen to records yeah. Um, at Larry's farmhouse and, and practice speaking and they would practice back and forth to each other reciting King's speeches, hmm. you know, and, wow. and so the, you know, the Clemens in the courtroom would say, excuse me, your honor, if it please the court at this point, I would like to interpose an objection. Right. He didn't say, like you see on the, on the courtroom dramas, yeah. You know, he didn't stand up and wave his legal pad and say, I object, right? Excuse me, your honor. <laughs> At this point, if it please the court, yeah. I would like to interpose an objection. And, you know, I think, I think that's very practiced and very deliberate. 
um, way of, of approaching everyone in the room yeah. and, and of showing that he was not, you know, while he could rage against the machine, he was there, sure. you know, to work within the system to push the system toward a more just result. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and he really did that so effectively in terms of his, his style and his approach. He was almost kind of out, out, of, out of a different generation in terms of, it was almost like a Southern lawyer, really, in a lot of respects. That's why I think he was really kind of almost like a real life um, Atticus Finch. Um, but he did die very suddenly. And um, in preparing for this, um, uh, podcast, I, I reviewed his obituary and, and it, the, the selected poem really impacted me because it said, I was given the gift of life and now I have to give it back. But I was a lucky man who led a wonderful life for the, and for this, I am grateful. And I thought that so perfectly captures, you know, um, he was literally going hundred miles an hour up through the nearly the day he died. I mean, he he literally had tried a murder case, you know, within the month I think um, prior to the time that he died, and um, it just sort of yes. reminds all of us. And so after that, it really struck me that life really is precious um, in terms of uh, you never know when you're it is going to be taken from you, and we just do have to really carpe diem and really seize the day for everything. Um, and so it was perfect. It was poetry. I wonder if you could share a little bit of um, if you know any writers that really um, influenced mm -hmm. him or any poems that he liked to share um, that, that may be of interest to our um, listeners. Yeah, I mean, I think, he, you know, he um, spent a lot of time reading and and studying, you know, poetry and, and other writings. Um, and, you know, some of the quotes that he used to share with me, in fact, I have a letter here that he wrote me. Um, that I'll just read, and it's on, uh, you know, letterhead um, from his his um, firm. But it says, "Dear Lil, here are a couple articles with pictures I thought you would like. I misplaced Aaron Kunkel's no hitter. Aaron would be uh, his cousin's son. Uh, Fifteen strikeouts in seven innings. But I sh thought I should send these while I've got my hands on them. Remember, we are proud of you for your efforts, regardless of results." Quote. The credit belongs to the woman, that's uh, uh, changed, who is actually in the arena, who at best knows the triumph of great achievement, and who at worst, if she fails, at least fails while daring greatly. Remember, quote, the joy is in the struggle, according to John Salter, love dad. And so he had that, that um, Teddy Roosevelt that is not the critic who counts, yeah. Not the man who points out where the strong man has stumbled or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. He had that on his wall in his office, you know, and I think that really motivated him um, because, you know, in, in the work as a lawyer and particularly when you're taking on difficult cases, I mean, he worked on the Sherman White case on and off for most of my childhood. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and there was, you know, there were, there were some times where he and Sherman um, maybe didn't see eye to eye. And, you know, Sherman, um, for those who don't know, was um, incarcerated for murder. Um, and, you know, the, the, it turns out there were a number of pieces that um, led to that that were not fair um, and not accurate. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, he was incarcerated at the age of 17, I believe. So, you know, wow. he, he had, I mean, I think I think my dad recognized Sherman's suffering, 
was always going to be greater than, than Clemens's suffering, even if the case was difficult, even if he felt guilt at not being able to achieve the goal of getting Sherman released from prison. You know, the, the, the suffering was not centered um, in the difficulty of the work as a lawyer. It was centered in the suffering of his client whose life was taken away, even though he was alive, because he mm -hmm. wasn't able to, yes. you know, live and, and be free in society. Um, and there was no guarantee, you know, that Sherman was ever going to get out. So the, the story we tell now is, well, yeah, what a great achievement. But, you know, sometimes your client uh, um, has an outcome that you don't think is just. And sometimes you look at yourself in the mirror and you say, is that my fault? Did I do something wrong? Was there something I should have done better? Right. And, and so this is a lot of what he mentored me on as a professional. Yeah, You know, because, you know, for me, uh, as a surgeon, doing the very sacred act of cutting into another person's body, yes. um, you know, the, 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 the specter of death is always there. And, you know, part of our practice as surgeons is always to say, you know, is there something that I could have done differently? Is there something that I could have done better? Yes. And I think he felt the same thing. So having that reminder from Teddy Roosevelt, you know, that, um, you know, this work is not for the faint of heart, but also, you know, it's really easy to sit on the sidelines and point out um, a mistake that someone else made. It's a lot harder to have an outcome you didn't like and then get up the next day and go back and keep doing the work. Well, and yeah, and I think that is what keeps lawyers up at night. And I'm sure that's what keeps doctors or any professional. Um, you want to do as good a job as you can with the facts that you have, with the case that you have. And as a surgeon, I'm sure that's your same goal, which is you want to get as good outcome you have based upon what's presented before you um, when you are doing your surgery. And I wonder if you could just comment a little bit. I, you know, I think a lot of times people see the dramatic moment of you know Atticus Finch doing the closing argument mm -hmm. but that is just a small tiny fraction of what really goes into be a, a, being a lawyer to get to that point it's stressful so I wonder if you could just share a little bit in terms of the, the time that law takes and the stress that it can cause if you could just comment a little bit about that about how he managed that what his approach that was because he always had a lot of systems in place I think by the end of his career he had all these systems but yeah. um, you almost have to in order to survive as a lawyer. But you yeah. can comment a little bit on more of the systems and how he handled that stress and the time from, um, and how it was maybe difficult for you, um, you know, with a dad that was so busy. Yeah, I mean, I think the systems evolved over time. You know, um, when I when I was a teenager, I worked in his office um, and I helped him with his like new billing software to get that kind of set up because, you know, you bill by like the 10th of the hour mm -hmm. or whatever. And so, and then I, and then I inputted his billing for him. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I took the piece of paper where he'd written down, you know, phone call, you know, Sherman white case, whatever, you know, 20 minutes or, or, um, the amount of time. And so you see that a lot of what a lawyer does is, making phone calls, is going to the law library to review old case law, to look for something to support, you know, a, an argument that you want to make. Um, I also spent time reviewing affidavits, you know, so it's like you're sitting with pieces of paper and you're trying to have the framework of, okay, what are the key issues of the case, mm -hmm. you know, so that as I'm looking through all these affidavits and interviews, I can find, 
you know, what information is actually relevant, right? Because you're, you're taking hundreds or thousands of pieces of paper. Some of those are related to the case. Some of those are related to prior law. You're also sitting and, and meeting the client and their family and finding out what's meaningful to them. What would a meaningful mm -hmm. outcome look like to them? Because that has to inform what you do. Yeah. And then you're synthesizing that all into a, you know, a small bundle of what's really the relevant information yeah. that you have to present, Precisely. you know, to the judge in the brief or, you know, in the, in the courtroom. Um, but yeah, so it's, you know, I don't know how much, what you think the percent is, but I think like 98% of the work happens, totally. you know, um, with the lawyer either sitting by themselves or talking on the phone or in person one-on-one. -on -one. And I think, you know, the, the thing that, um, the thing that was stressful for him was, I think, really this idea that, um, you know, he he felt very deeply the, not that it was his suffering. I, mean, I think he always understood that it was someone else's suffering and that he was simply there to help them with it. But he felt very deeply, you know, the outcomes to not just the, the client, but their family, you know, and what it means to have a father or a son or a sister, uh, you know, in jail and not a part of your family, maybe for decades, Yes. Um, yeah. you know, and, and so I, I mentioned before, you know, he spent time at the monastery, he spent time on sort of solitary retreats. Sometimes he, um, you know, he taught me to meditate when I was young. And so I know he used meditation practices, um, you know, for a lot of it. And then I think, you know, doing the other meaningful things, and this is the same work that we talk about. There's a lot of burnout in medicine and surgery. Um, physicians have an extremely high rate of suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, women physicians um, have a higher rate of suicide than, than the average population. Um, and it's finding meaning both in your work mm -hmm. and in your life. And so those other things that I talked about, like his herb garden, um, going on, you know, walks with his husky. He had a husky named Rocco who he just loved and adored. Um, and, and, you know, um, that dog brought a lot of, of peace to his life. He actually mm -hmm. skied with the dog. He did something called ski yoring, which is where you have a harness and the dog pulls you on your cross country skis. And oh, wow. I was able to do that with Rocco actually, um, one time when I came, you know, back to Iowa, uh, in the winter, um, but, it, you know, being out in nature and sort of connecting with that meaning of life. And I think, you know, when you, when you talk about his death or any death, and we start reflecting, the meaning is not in the death, mm -hmm. right? The meaning is all in the life. That's what you're yes. talking about, right? And it just, yes. it maybe shifts your focus to think, okay, I realize that, you know, my life is finite and, and what is meaningful today and tomorrow? What can I do today that's meaningful? And so I think, you know, that that helped him. I, I actually have um, a process that I go through mm -hmm. when a patient dies um, because, because, I do suffer. Yes. But again, the suffering is mostly not mine because to me, you know, that, that encounter, even if it may have, I may have known that person for years. Um, you know, I was the professional, I was the healer, mm -hmm. but the, the people who are suffering the most are the, the loved ones yes. who feel that loss in their lives. And so I have my own grieving process that I go through um, you know, and I have some poems and songs that are meaningful to me that help me honor that life and the connection that I had. And, you know, Clemens, Clemens always knew he was going to die mm -hmm. and he didn't fear it. Yes. 
And I think, you know, one of his, his favorite writers was Dylan Thomas. And when I think about the Thomas poem about not going gentle into that good night, rage, rage against the dying of the light, it's not about hanging on to life. It's not about trying to stick around for longer. It's about making sure that each day that you're here, you are enjoying that struggle, that you mm -hmm. are, you know, living your life to the fullest. That That's raging against the dying of the light. It's, it's doing it while you're living because you know that your time on this earth is finite. And that, and that's exactly what he did. And um, you're right. It, it, it's not the death. It's the, it's the lives that he touched and how he brought people together. And, you know, it was kind of funny. I literally met Roxy, his, his wife, um, at the receiving line. And I said, uh, I, I said, Roxy, I said, I know you. And she said, I, she, but I've never met you. And he, she says, I know who you are. And I just bawled, I just bawled. And it was just incredible because, you know, I, we all had this sort of part of him that we saw. And yet there was this amazing kaleidoscope of friends that he had that then came back to celebrate his amazing life. And, um, and he did live, you know, he did not go quietly. I mean, he was literally fighting for justice almost until the day he died. I thought that was just really incredible. And I think you talked about, um, you know, the, the, the stress and the anxiety and the fears, but I've really found a lot of, um, in my own practice, um, in the practice of stoicism, which is kind of really popular now, but just the central insight of this classical notion of focusing on what you can control and letting go of what you can't, right? Mm -hmm. and, and not worried about things that you can't. It's almost like a Zen state. And I think Clemens really was that way. He really did focus on what he can control. And then he was able to kind of let go um, when he wasn't. But that is challenging for medicine and with law. So we're getting up here close to the end of, of the hour. Um, I'm wondering if, if you could just sort of have a, um, if there's a sort of a take home message you could have in terms of, you know, the impact that Clemens had on you, um, maybe some books that he liked. What, what do we want people to really remember about this incredible life of, of Clemens Erdahl? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, he, you mentioned he was gone a lot um, when I was a child. And, you know, there certainly are um, times when I wish that um, his work had taken him away a little bit less, um, you know, and I think I carry that lesson forward with my own children. Um, and it's not, but it's not just about the quantity of time. It's about making the time that we have quality, yeah. you know, and so I remember, you know, building a, a clubhouse in the backyard with him and my best friend and you know really um he was just able to find so much joy in the present moment mm -hmm. and you know some of the things that he did um were to tell his his legal assistants and his secretaries if my children call interrupt me wow right and and I remember him getting pretty frustrated with one secretary one time and he was like you know and then apologizing to me and saying listen you know I don't know why she didn't interrupt me because I've been very clear mm -hmm. you know I you know so wanting us to know that we were a priority in his life no. and um you know I, I think that's that's something that I try to convey to my children and when I talk to people about you know this whether we call it work-life balance or work-life integration, the idea that, you know, you can be a professional and be there for your family 
And, you know, when I was an adult, we used to call each other fairly frequently, um, but it, it was funny. He was still very much Clemens. And so, you know, I, I wasn't on the other end of the phone, but I think he had, um, I think he had a little notepad and I think I probably was on his to-do list, PC, <laughs> Lily. Yeah. And then he, he probably had an outline of the couple of things that he wanted to tell me. Um, you know, because it was just a way of remembering, not because I was simply a checkbox on his to-do list, you know, but he wanted to maybe talk to me about the basketball game yesterday and, you know, ask me about, you know, something specific and follow up. Um, you know, so I think he really, um, you know, one, one of the things, and I think that the thing that we hear in all the stories was that he was able to be in the present moment with, you know, and engage with the people and the circumstances around him. And I think that's why people felt so kind of warm and, and connected to him, you know, um, was because he was able to be in the present moment. And that's, you know, I think that's the takeaway lesson is, you know, you, as you said, you know, and as, as um, I was reminded recently, as I attended a talk by um, Dr. Janita Tanzi, you know, as Victor Frankl would say, even in a concentration camp, you know, you have control over how you respond to the circumstances, right? And so suffering before the suffering is only you creating your own suffering. Wow. Yeah. And, and Victor Frankl, I mean, that really comes up. And he, God, you know, it's sort of funny, a couple different thoughts before we leave. You know, we've, we've talked a lot about this question of suffering and suffering is obviously something that's not pleasant. But in my interview with Joe, with Joe Blair, um, he wrote a book, he's a fabulous Iowa Writers Workshop guy that wrote By the Iowa Sea. And I hope people get a chance to read that book. An incredible book. But in that book, um, Joe reminds us of the um, origin of the word passion, which is actually mm. passionum, which means to suffer. Um, which just sort of blew my mind because a lot of times people talk about my passion. My, pa my passion is to be an artist or my passion is to be a writer, but passion, like the passion of the Christ is suffering. Mm -hmm. um, and I think professionally, there is this calling to serve and to be a lawyer or to be a surgeon, but there's a suffering associated with it. But it's being at peace with that, that that's part of the process. Um, and it's something that's almost like that we do have to, to go through to be able to do that. And, and, I, and I think that that just really reminds me of, you know, like with Clemens, the fact that he, um, he did, there was probably some suffering just with the stress and that sorts of things, but yeah, he did it with such, um, and he did make, and I guess the other point I'd want to make is, I think the great lawyers, um, you know, Alfredo Parrish, Clemens was one, when they're with you, they are in the present, and they make you feel like you were the most talented person in the world. And I think everyone that came together, like, you know, every time I get together with him, I mean, he, he kind of made me feel like I was F. Lee Bailey. And I think everyone that came to remember his life sort of had a similar experience. They all had these incredible Clemens stories. You know, Ron Clark of Riverside Theater, um, federal judge Michael Malloy, um, John Burns, you know, you and your siblings. Um, and he just, he just really, it really was this incredible well-lived life and I so wish I would have had an opportunity to you know talk a little bit I think he was a little bit of a closet stoic too and I discovered stoicism after that 
I'm wondering, do you have any final in conclusion, any book recommendations um, of really books that were really influential among Clemens to the extent that you know? And if not, maybe you could share uh, some of yeah, your own I mean, book, re book recommendations. Again, I, it's hard to pick like one or even a couple of books. Um, I mentioned um, Dylan Thomas and his poetry was definitely influential. Anything by Martin Luther King Jr. And then, you know, one of the books um, that I took actually um, from his things as we were going through was um, Ta-Nehisi Coates, Between the World and Me or In Between the World and Me. And, um, you know, I think, I think that... Um, this is a time of renewed attention to the extreme racial injustice that really is woven into the fabric of America. And, you know, I can tell you, my dad and I argued quite a bit about Thomas Jefferson, hmm. um, you know, and, and his role in perpetuating this racist foundation of our country. And I think his cowardice in waiting to free his slaves until he died, you know, and again, it's very easy to, to judge Jefferson from here, but, you know, I think I've, I've talked about this with um, other Black Americans, and, and, you know, I think um, that there's a lot of renewed attention to that, so I would encourage people to read books by Black authors about not just the, the experience of living in our country, but how all of us can be a part of the solution. Um, you know, how to be an, an anti-racist by Ibram Kendi. I mean, there, there are a lot of books out there, but I think it's, it's, it's not one book. It's, it's having the humility to say, I have been a part of the problem. And, and how can I be a part of the solution? And I think that's a fitting way to end because as eloquent as Clemens was, um, he advanced the racial justice um, cause through his deeds. And I think so often when there's an act of racial injustice in the country, you know, white people tend to pat ourselves on the back. We congratulate ourselves how unracist we are, or we white splain, or we do this, or we do that. And we talk a lot, which has its value. It can be very therapeutic. And Clemens is very eloquent, but he did it through deeds. And you know the story um, of him getting a haircut, and I think at an all-black barbershop in Davenport, mm -hmm. I think was really one of the best stories um, from the funeral because it really demonstrated that he had established the trust and admiration on behalf of so many countless people of color, not through what he said, which of course he did through his job, but through what he did in terms of results and trust and honoring their individual stories and taking their case incredibly seriously, just like he did with everyone else. Um, and so that's just such a great way to remember him. And I just remember, um, you know, the last thing I ever said to Clemens was, I said, Clemens, are you ever going to retire? And I mm. said, or, or I said, or are you going to be like um, MacArthur? You know, old soldiers never die. They just fade, fade away. I said, Clemens, you're going to be like a uh, MacArthur, aren't you? You know, old players never die. They just kind of fade, fade away. And he said, all right, Rock, uh, see you next time. He kind of chuckled a little bit. And then I got a call from Eric Kendall two weeks later uh, that Clemens had passed away. But he, his life had ended, but I think his ideas, his legacy, um, his memory, I think lives on in all of us. And I'm so honored that you would take the time to explore your dad's incredible life with our listeners. Um, and so I wonder if you have any final thoughts you want to share related to Clemens before we close. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, um, 
the thing that I try to do more than anything is help my children and my nieces and nephews feel connected to him. And so, you know, I sing to my children the lullaby that he sang to me when I was little, um, you know, and, and the lullaby uh, came about because he took a balloon and put a KFC ketchup cup, you know, a little souffle cup on the bottom of it and made a hot air balloon for his little daughter, you know, to bring joy to her face. Whoa. And so that's, that's the Clemens that I want my children to know and be mm-hmm. connected to the Clemens who played in the Iowa creeks with his cousins when he was a little boy. Um, and he wanted to come back to this place, to this farmland, you know, which again, his Norwegian ancestors were farmers. Um, and so that, that's the Clemens that I want them to remember. And, you know, I think the lesson as we go forward in our work for justice and against inequity is is to listen you know and i've been honored to listen to our current community leaders like bruce teague and mazahir sala um you, you know and to have them have the the grace to share their lived experience with their community um you know we've so many community leaders derek willis you know, I mean, I think people need to look at the organizations like Dream City, Iowa, that, that are really, you know, continuing this work. Clemens was involved in helping some of the people who founded the Domestic Violence Intervention Project, too, you know, which marked its 40th anniversary um, a year or two ago. And, and you know, Roxanne as well um, was involved with that early on. But, you know, there are so many community organizations and community organizers doing this work. And, and I'm just grateful that they're there. I think, you know, my dad would have been humbled to have you compare him to Atticus Finch and would, would not have, um, you know, would have, would have allowed you to do that, but would not have um, felt that in his soul. I think he always felt like there was more work to be done. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think we can, we can all continue that work and to continue to support those who are doing that important work. What what a perfect way to to conclude uh, to carry on his memory through advancing racial justice, ensuring that every voice is heard and everyone belongs. So, Lily, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Rocky Cast. I think this has probably been one of the most personal for me, and I'm so honored that we can sort of create this sort of living legacy and memory that hopefully not only your kids will be able to hear someday in terms of as we remember. Um, but this is this is now part of Clemens' story. So thank you so much for being on this episode of the Rocky Cast. I really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. It's good to talk to you, Rockney. Thank you so much. And friends of the Rockney Cast, stay tuned for continuing episodes. We're going to continue to explore uh, the liberal arts and mind, body, and spirit um, for everyone with an interest in in advancing um, those particular issues. Thank you so much for tuning into the Rockney cast. We'll continue to put on high quality content. And for those of you who are on Spotify or Apple or all podcasts where uh, podcasts are heard, be sure to give us positive reviews and to spread the message of what we're trying to do here at the Rockney cast. So thank you so much for tuning in. And so until next time on the Rockney cast.